You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. introduce you to my heroes, Regina Calcaterra and Rosie Maloney. Hero is a big word, I know, but once you learn a little about, about these women, you'll probably, they'll probably be your heroes too. Their story is unique, although in many ways it is sadly common. Rosie and Regina grew up in and out of foster homes and spent much time, along with their two other sisters and their brother, raising themselves in abandoned homes or apartments places that usually didn't have heat and certainly didn't have any of the provisions five young kids would need to thrive. The older girls stole groceries to feed everyone, and they did everything necessary to get the younger ones, Rosie and Norm, to school every day. For clothes, they picked through the bins behind the Salvation Army. It really is nice that this reading is taking place in a library because libraries, along with schools, are what saved the five kids. The older kids frequently took everyone to the library, and the older ones being Regina, uh, Camille, and Sherry. Frequently took everyone to the library. Uh, saved, the older girls frequently took everyone to the library, no matter where they were living. And when Rosie and Norm were eventually separated from the other girls, they, from the other kids, they found their own way to the library. Libraries are where the kids could find heat, working bathrooms with toilet paper kind librarians, and endless escape and entertainment in books. At the times Rosie and Regina's mother was with them, she brutalized them. I won't go into details of that. Rosie and Regina are going to read from some of the book, and you'll hear about it. But their mother's capacity for cruelty was beyond anything I've ever experienced or read about. And because their mother was so profoundly brutal to her daughters, she also chose men who were equally awful. The fact that these two women survived all this is not what makes them my heroes. Rather, they are heroic because of who they have each chosen to be and how they have each chosen to live their lives after after having endured what they did. In spite of the violence they experienced at their mother's hands, they are both loving, nonviolent parents. In spite of the ridicule they experienced, they are neither jaded nor cruel. In spite of being abused, By various men their mother brought around, they have healthy, loving, strong relationships. In spite of the cruelty they experienced, they are each profoundly kind people. I mean really kind in that way that few people can be. They both live with the idea in their heads that you never know what has happened to anyone in their life that day or the hour before you encounter them, so presume nothing. Forgive the rude waitress. Don't make fun of the guy who looks like he was dressed from well, a Salvation Army bin. In spite of having lived a life of scarcity, they are neither gluttonous nor greedy in any way. In fact, they are the opposite of that, as each of these women gives generously, far more than I, of their time, money, and resources to various nonprofits, and they have given to others from an incredibly young age. In other words, they gave of themselves when it seems almost inconceivable that they had anything to give. And in spite of a childhood where there is very little to be thankful for, they are each eternally grateful. I'm going to take a little, I'm going to talk a little more about Rosie in particular because it was Rosie's story that the three of us worked on together. And it was Rosie's diaries and journals and yearbooks that we scoured through while working on the book. The most shocking thing I found in Rosie's diaries was not the recounting of one or another of their mother's incredible tortures, or even torture at the hands of a particularly abusive foster mother. Rather, it was the gratitude list she wrote. In a country where most kids will whine and cry because they don't have the latest Xbox or who knows what, Rosie, who had nothing as a kid, wrote gratitude lists. One of her gratitude lists found in a journal said, I'm grateful for my cat. I'm grateful I have clothes to wear to school today. I'm grateful for my friends. Of course, she also wrote in these journals about what was happening and it happened to her, but she didn't complain or bitch. She chronicled. She took note, and she looked around herself at her life and found the places and reasons she could be happy. You can imagine that with four-hour Skype calls, 
that the three of us did together. And equally long phone calls on a regular basis. The three of us talked about everything in our lives, theirs in particular, and not just the stuff that went in the book. I want to recount a bit of a discussion Rosie and I had about God once. She and her family are faithful believers and regularly go to church, and churches, I should mention, were another place where Rosie found solace growing up. In our conversation, Rosie said something like, how could I not believe? I mean, how could I have come out of all that okay without some higher power looking out for me? My response as a spiritual non-believer was something like, you're the higher power, Rosie. You're the great and awesome being who pulled you through all that. You're the amazing one. I believe this to be true of Regina, too, of course. So here they are, my heroes, Rosie virtually, because she had to be in Utah, uh, two goddesses in my faith, Rosie Maloney and Regina Calcaterra. Right, so what I first want to do is actually give you, since um, um, only one person here read Action Sand, which is somewhat of the background to Girl Unbroken, because Girl Unbroken serves as a sequel, even though it occurs at, at the same time. I wanted to give you a bit of background on um, how this all came about. So I was born to a um, mother who had five kids by five different men. And our mother would, um, was mentally ill, and which was fine if she was able to deal with um, her mental illness or have it um, or have someone help her with it, but it was a different era where really pe- people just did not have the ability to have the resources to to seek help when they had mental illness. So what she did was she self-medicated through drugs and alcohol. So here was this woman who was completely incapable of taking care of herself, let alone the five kids that she had. And so what she would do is you know, because our fathers left us right after we were born. So it was just the five kids and us, and we were five little kids. So she would find us these places to live, and this all happened on Long Island in a suburb called Suffolk County, which is the eastern end of Long Island. And she would find us these places to live, and sometimes we would be in houses or apartments, but we would never stay there too long because because we would ultimately end up getting evicted. And other times we ended up living behind supermarkets, out of cars, on the streets, and when the authorities caught up with us, we ended up in foster homes. But when we weren't in foster homes, we were under our mother's care. So when we were under her, her care and she would find us these different places to live, she would just abandon us there for weeks at a time. So we were these five little kids, and we had to figure out how to survive. And one of the most important things that we needed to do was steal food to eat. So we, as this group of children, would, would have to figure out ways to steal food to eat, which we did pretty effectively, and I'm saying that because we never got arrested. And um, as five-year-olds, you can imagine how that would go in the press. So, But we would steal food from supermarkets and from farms and all these other places. And then once in a while when our mother came home and back into our, vi- our environment, she would register us in school. But we would never be in school for too long because she had so many warrants that were out for her arrest that she – once in a while would feel that the heat was on. She would call the police or the authorities the heat. And she, she was getting concerned that they may find out where she is because of where we were registered. She ended up pulling us out of school. And for us, um, school was a place of solace. If you think about what a, what a school is for a child in need, it is a place that's temperature controlled, that has electricity that works, that has clean running water, and operating bathrooms. And these are not things that any child in need takes advantage of because it's just not something you have readily accessible to you. So we would walk into a school and we would automatically get that. So that was a safe place for us because at least we had these amenities. And the other thing that that we would benefit from when we walked into a school is we would get free lunch because the administration would take one look at us and sign us up for free lunch. And then the byproduct of all of that was we would get educated. And um, But we were able to get educated if we're well-fed and if we're in a safe place. So the school school provided us those things to, to allow us to open our minds to do that. But like I said, we weren't in there too long because my mother would always end up pulling us out, and then we'd find another place, and she'd register us in school again. But when we weren't in um, school, we had to find another place to go. 
and, and the safe place for us would be public libraries. You could imagine, you think about a child in need, a kid who lives on the fringe of society, which is what we were, and what a library actually provides for a child in that situation. I mean, back then, we didn't, you didn't have a need for library cards. We didn't have to show ID, so it was very easy to walk in and sit down and use whatever, you know, books that we, that, that we wanted. And it was a place where we felt very safe. It had operating bathrooms. It was temperature controlled. It provided almost the same environment except for the free lunch. Um, but still, it was a safe place for us. And it was, they were places where we would, I mean, we wouldn't walk into a library as five kids and be able to settle down all at once because no five kids would ever do that. So let's be realistic about that, even like two children at the same time. But finally, after we went through all the highlight magazines and every other activity book that they had in, in a library, we would settle down and we would read. And that would give us the ability to open our minds and start thinking about how other people lived. And um, so that is kind of how it was when we were with our mother. I mean, so we made the best of our situation, even though she wasn't a, a stable woman at all. And then when she would come back into our world again, she was also abusive to us. So here we were. We were kids who were physically abused, we were abandoned, and we were neglected. But we wanted to do whatever we possibly could to stay with her. Because what would happen is when the authorities found out what was going on, and granted, just to give you a little backdrop, I mean, we were born in the 60s and 70s. So we were placed in foster homes in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and it was a different era. So there were foster homes that we were placed in back then um, that were pretty safe. I mean, we had some lovely foster parents. But the problem is that we were five kids, and we would never get placed together, and we would get separated. So some of us would be placed with the lovely foster parents, and others of us would be placed with the foster parents who really should have had a background check done on them, but we didn't have them back then. And they did terrible things to little kids. So when the five of us would get back together, when our mother would win custody of us again and we got back together, we would then share with each other all the, the, some of the terrible things that happened to us at the hands of some of these strangers. And um, what we realized is that even though we were, some, some of us would be in good foster homes, um, but some of us would be in bad foster homes. And the problem there was not necessarily the bad foster parents. The problem there was that the five of us weren't together. Because at least when the five of us were together, we were able to protect one another. So we realized that regardless of what was going on with our mother, how much she abandoned us and how much she neglected us and abused us, we were better off with her than going into a foster home because it was we made a decision at a young age that was better for us to deal with the devil that we knew than the devil that we didn't know. So this is how we led our life. And it was the middle of a suburban communi community that, that there are pockets of poverty there, but it was middle income and there were some high income communities too. So we lived in this county and moved around a lot and we were able to do it under the radar screen and we did this for a while um, up until the age when I was about to turn 14 years old. And Rosie is my, um, my younger sister. And so there's five of us, and I'm in the middle, and Rosie's the youngest. And by the time I reached about 11 years old, I was the primary caretaker of Rosie and Norman. And um, so I was trying to do the best that I possibly could at such a young age. And um, at a certain point, the wheels came off, and things happened, and social services found out what was going on. And they came in, they scooped us up, and um, they did the worst possible thing that could ever be done to any child in and out of foster care. They separated us again. So here we were. I was at the age of 14, and I was placed in one foster home with my older sister. And Rosie and Norman, my two younger siblings, were placed in another foster home. And, um, and we were separated. And that's where Girl Unbroken begins, because what Etch and Sand does, Etch and Sand um, takes you through my journey about you know, living in the situation and how I managed to pull myself up. And it has these themes in it that are very similar themes to, to Girl Unbroken. But we won't talk about those themes yet. But the way that, that we both survived was by certain people being in our lives, which we'll talk about once we get to the Q&A. So that's, so after writing Etch and Sam, which has been out for three years and has been a New York Times bestseller for, it was about 18 weeks, and has been incorporated into high school and college curriculum nationwide, which is absolutely fabulous. A lot of people have read it. And the people who have read it have always wanted to know what happened to Rosie. And the reason why is because when I was placed in that one foster home on Long Island and Rosie was placed in another foster home, um, we were separated. And our mother, Cookie, 
went to the foster home where Rosie and Norman were and actually kidnapped them and brought them to Idaho. And so the readers of Etch and Sand wanted to know what happened to Rosie because um, in, in, that, in my story, I felt it wasn't appropriate for me to share her story. It was just appropriate for me to share my story. And because so many readers were interested in, in what happened to her, then we actually sat down and, and we wrote her story as well. So that leads us to Girl Unbroken, which we're here to do today. So what I'm going to do is to kind of introduce Girl Unbroken is just set this up a bit is um, I'm going to read the author's note. Rosie's going to read the introduction, and she's going to just share with you a little bit more about her story because we're really here to, to talk about that, that. And then we'll open it up to questions and answers. Okay. When I wrote Etch and Sand, I revisited the harrowing details of my own journey while deliberately remaining conservative, which with how much I shared of my siblings' own stories. In fact, it was Rosie, my youngest sister, who I was the most protective of, a heightened instinct that to this day I have yet to shed. Although I was steadfast about not disclosing her experiences, I also knew that her story would inspire those caped in darkness to push through toward the light. At the urging of Etch and Sand's readers, who for the past three years kept inquiring about Rosie's welfare, Rosie was inspired to tell her story. Rosie and I embarked on the journey of writing Girl Unbroken together. I'm going to hold off because we just lost her. an internet connection problem. Yes, okay. So Rosie and I embarked on the journey of writing Girl and Broken together. For her, it was tremendously empowering. For me, it was a heartfelt labor of love, an everlasting gift that will constantly remind her how resilient she truly is. In order to tell it well, we felt it necessary to write it in Rosie's voice in the first-person narrative, so readers can share her journey along her, alongside her, just as they did alongside me in Etch and Sand. Girl Unbroken is the true story of Rosie's experiences shortly before she was removed from the care of her older sisters, and the atrocity she endured after our mother dragged Norman and her across the country and far away from those who loved her the most. Now, I know one person here had read, read Etch and Sand at the end of the book. Oh, you did as well? Okay. The um, read Etch and Sand, and at the end of the book, um, I acknowledged my siblings right away. You know, it was the they were the first group of people that I acknowledged and, and thanked them for actually being comfortable enough with me sharing our story. And when I came to thanking Rosie, this is what I wrote. I wrote, I thank Rosie, boundless love and adoration to Rosie, who has her own story to tell, which I'll encourage her to do only when she is ready. And now she is ready. So we need to get connected with her, which we're going to do. What was that? Um, it says internet connection problem. So, so I'm going to jump in a bit and, and start um, chatting a little bit about the story. So... What are the important things to, 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 to learn when you have an opportunity to read Etch and Sand and Girl Unbroken? So I'll talk about the themes because I don't want to give away Rosie's story yet. Is the fact that we were kids who lived on the fringe of society and um, we really didn't have a parent and we all managed to pull through. And, and there, there's a few reasons why we managed to pull through. Be one of them is because we live in America. And there are a tremendous amount of resources. And one of the things that we what we both learned at a, at a reasonably young age is that there are enough resources here in the United States that if we learn how to harness them, you can succeed. But the only way you're actually going to do that. So note, we can't expect every child out there who is impoverished, who doesn't have a safety net and doesn't have a parent, to pull themselves up and out of poverty just because the resources are there. So those resources were always there. 
But the way that we were able to pull ourselves up and out of that was because people convinced us along the way that we had the wherewithal to do that. And that is the theme in both Rosie's story and my story. And because you, you can't expect a child who lives on the fringe of society who, who has um, resources available to them to be able to figure out how to harness them. If they don't have a parent, they don't have anyone else telling them how it is that they can pull themselves up and out. Um, they can't do that if they don't believe in themselves. So the, the folks who actually build up our self-worth and our self-determination were strangers along the way. And the strangers kind of varied in both of our lives, but, but the names were different and the people were different, but the roles that they played were the same. I mean, a lot of them were librarians and public school teachers. And we had public school teachers in our young life, both of us, that told us we were smart, we were talented, that the only way out of poverty was through staying in school, and that we were able to dictate what our future was if we received college educations. And they would constantly reinforce this to us over and over again through both of our lives. And even though we were transient children, and we were both transient children on two different parts of the United States. I was on the, on the Northeast and she, she was on the Northwest. But there were still these educators that were saying this to us. And the other ones were librarians. I mean, Etch and Sand, I, I spend a lot of time talking about the impact that librarians actually had on me and the, the books that they directed me to. And, um, and many of them were d books about female heroines who, who were heroes, like true American heroes. And and through their circumstances, still managed to do amazing things. And it was like Dolly Madison and Betsy Ross and Amelia Earhart. And Rosie had librarians do the same thing for her, direct her to certain books that would allow her to imagine, not, not her life in a different way, but imagine the life of these other people who overcame challenging circumstances to kind of like put her in that position that maybe that this, that this could be her as well. So we had these amazing librarians and public school teachers and crossing guards and, and a few other people plant these seeds in, in, in our world on two different parts of, of, of the um, map of the United States all around the same time. And the other thing that happened to us was, you know, as young kids who grow up in poverty, you don't necessarily look good. You have, um, I mean, we didn't have a washing machine, so the only way we were washing our clothes was if we washed them by hand. And you can imagine what clothes look like if any kid has to wash their own clothes by hand. Not very pretty. And we also, um, um, no one was teaching us how to blow our nose because it wasn't a priority. We didn't really brush our teeth because we were too busy stealing food, so we weren't focusing on stealing a toothbrush. And um, so we had one toothbrush amongst the five of us with flattened bristles, so you can imagine what our dental hygiene was like. And forget about the fact about taking a bath or shower, because you're five little kids. Unless you're telling each other to do that, you're not really doing that. So I'm just giving you a visual of what we actually look like. And so when we would go out and, 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 and be outside, we would do what every child does. And what do they do? They find other kids, right? They f children find other children because they're, they're magnets to each other and they want to play with one another. And we would both have parents of these children tell their kids to stay away from us because of how we looked. I'm going to try and call her again. Okay. Yeah. Um, so because, because of how we looked. And, um, but that, fortunately for us, was actually a, a few so even though we had that, we had parents of, of kids telling us, I mean, parents of children. Oh, this sounds good. Hi. Hey, hey, sweets. I'm, I was just talking to folks a little bit more. Why do we have a woman from Walmart cooking? Um, the, um, hold on. Can you see us? Um, I can't. You cannot see us. Oh, and I, I can see you. Okay. Oh, it's about to happen now. Okay. I, I, I was just giving a bit of background, so I'm going to wrap up that for a second to kind of like segue into you. So, um, so I talked about the role that librarians and teachers plays, and I also told, uh, I mentioned a little bit about what, what some parents said. But fortunately for, fortunately for us, we did not have the majority of parents respond to us that way because we, even though we did have parents who would take a look at us and tell the children to stay away from us, the reality is that we had more, more people in our life who were parents of children that we would engage that would look at us and tell their child to take us home or invite us home. And when we would go back to their home, we would not, whether it was for a meal or an evening or a night or for a weekend, we would get fed. We would get a bath or a shower, 
They would try to teach us how to blow, blow our nose. We'd get a free toothbrush, and of course, we'd get a meal. But the most important thing that we would take away from that experience was the one thing we couldn't be taught in school or a library, right? We learned what a healthy home environment was. So literally, the themes in both Etched in Sand and Girl and Broken is how these two young girls lived on the fringe of society in different parts of the U.S., but these sisters who were related, and actually had these other people in their life that were not their parents play a significant enough role that they paved the way for us to pull ourselves up and out. And we were transient kids. But they each looked at us, each of these adults who were in our lives at that time, looked at us as not lost causes. Because there could have been people who did look at us as a lost cause, but we had more people in our lives who did not look at us as lost causes. And it, like I said, it included the parents who invited us home, who just showed us what a healthy home environment was. And they didn't do it by design. It was just another option that we were being afforded. So, um, so that's the themes between the two stories. So, Rosie, what I did is while we were trying to connect with you again, is I just walked them through, not what your story, sweetie, was, but what the themes between both of our stories were and why we felt it was important to share our stories because the role that strangers actually had in our lives and that how nobody saw us as a lost cause. But what I also did do was read the um, author's note when I thought you were standing there next to me, and then you weren't anymore. So why don't I open it up and, and so you could start in, t in the introduction of the book, and then you could just give a little background, but I will tell you I gave them some level of background about us leading up to the foster home. So once you get to the foster home part, that's where you could actually pick up. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then we'll open up to Q&A. All right. Did you take a nap during the break? Um, no. No. I <laughs> know. All right. Okay, sweet. So why don't you just open it up there at introduction. Sure. And actually, I'm going to be reading um, a little bit more um, from Chapter 1. Um, is that still is that still good? Yeah, yeah, Fine. Okay. Um, introduction. We were five kids with five different fathers: one jailed and then dead, two missing and two unknown. Our mother Cookie was more gone than there, more drunk than sober, more mentally ill than mentally well. Cookie blew in and out of our lives like a hurricane, blind and uncaring to everything in her path. Once she arrived, she dispensed beatings or tied my sister Jean naked to the radiator or called all my sisters sluts and whores simply because, in spite of the fact that they were starving, exhausted, and without heat in many New York winters, they remained beautiful, strong-willed, self-reliant, and loving. Cookie just couldn't rip all that good out of them, but they hid it from her the best they could storing all their sweetness and goodwill in me and our brother Norm. Norm and I were the babies, the little ones, the ones they wanted to save. My sister G looked at me as her do-over. Everything that had been missing from her childhood, she brought to mine. She read to me, she piled clothes on top of me to keep me warm, she bathed me, brushed my light brown hair, taught me to taught me how to count in English, Spanish, and French. During the storms of my mother being home and in the calm of her absence, the only thing I knew for sure was that G would make everything okay. In this way, I was always safe, loved, and cared for. I was her Rosie, her sweetie, her Bambina. When she was nine years old, G wrote a poem that her teacher saved and gave back to her years later. You have to walk that lonesome road. You have to walk it by yourself. And there's nobody who's going to walk it for you. Our Calcaterra. We didn't know it then, but that poem and those words were words I would have to live by before I turned nine. G walked with me as far as she could. But in the end, there was nothing she could do to hang on to me when our mother and the county social workers decided I'd be better off without my siblings. This story is about the missing years when my sisters weren't there to save me. These were the years I had to walk that lonesome road, and you can bet that as soon as I was upright and strong enough, I walked that road straight back to the people who loved me. Okay, I'm gonna read part of um, chapter one and then jump to another section. Um, Cause I can't give away everything, of course. Okay, chapter one, foster things. She told me we were moving again. 
If you count foster homes and living in cars where I, as the youngest, slept in the footwell, we moved at least 15 times already, and I was only eight years old. This move was worse, though. In this move, I was losing my sisters. The oldest of us, Sherry, had already left to live with her husband and new baby. The rest of us had found ourselves, once again, to be wards of the state. Camille at 17, G almost 14, Norm 12, and me. We were in the upstairs bedroom of a house we called the Toad House because it was a drab gray with big front windows that looked like hooded eyes. My clothes were in this room, but I'd never slept here. Jean Norm and I were like a litter of pups, curling up every night in the living room together where we felt safe. Months ago, our mother, Cookie, had, a, had abandoned the four of us in the Toad House. Later that same day, Camille moved into her best friend's house. She didn't want to leave, us behind but she thought maybe if she can be if she had a real home and didn't have to worry about food she could get a few odd jobs and make enough money to buy food for us when cookie finally returned two nights ago she beat g so violently that there were raised bruises like purple walnuts running around her brow to her cheek around g's swollen and now lopsided lips were craggy lines of scabs she thought it was probably the social studies teacher, Mr. Brown, who called social, social services the next day. She told me she didn't realize how bad she looked until she saw Mr. Brown's face turn white at the sight of her. It's always harder to ignore the truth when you see that truth in someone else's eyes. Now Cookie was in the kitchen with a silver-haired social worker and another social worker sat in the living room. She was a pretty blonde-haired woman who looked like just like Mrs. Brady from the Brady Bunch. Why can't I go with you, I asked G. We were looking out the window at the two gray cars parked in the gravel driveway. One was waiting to take Norm and me away. The other was for G and Camille. After G learned that social services was snooping around, she called Camille at her friend's house. Camille rushed to take care of us. There are too many of us to fit in the same car, love bug. She was as skinny as a piece of licorice, losing her hair from malnutrition and the stress of having to steal food just to make sure Norm and I would keep growing. But we always fit in the same car. Not this time, G said. Tears streaked down her face. I grabbed G's licorice leg and said, but you always said that we were all so skinny and we can be all be folded up and to fit anywhere. And we are really skinny now. We can fit in the same car. Well, maybe we can, but the home that you're going to prefers little kids like you and Norm because you're cuter, sweeter, and easier to hug. G picked me up and squished me in her arms. I could feel her bones and muscles and all the love coming out of me. Cookie, our mother, had arms as big as my belly. All that bubbling flesh, and she never used any of it to love us. There were boyfriends, however, men who got a charming, purring version of Cookie reserved just for them. Sometimes Cookie paid the rent with her flesh. Watching Cookie, I absorbed a quick lesson, barely understood at the time, but fully digested of just how much utility the female form can hold. I'm not a baby, I told G. She brushed my hair with her darting fingers and said, you will always be my baby, Mia Bambina. G stopped talking for a minute, as if something were stuck in her throat. Her lumpy face was wet with tears, and then finally she said, I'm so sorry, Mia Bambina. I'm so, so sorry. But you didn't do anything wrong. You were protecting me. I started to touch my sister's face, but pulled my hand away when I remembered how much those walnut bruises had hurt when I touched them last. I was supposed to take care of you forever, she said, and then she began crying again. With everything we'd endured, and everything we'd seen, you'd think we'd be, we'd seen a lot of crying, but we were scrappy, willful and driven. We knew how to get a loaf of bread out of a grocery store with no cash in less than 60 seconds. We knew how to manage landlords, bill collectors, our mother's old boyfriends and enraged wives whose husbands had slept with Cookie and nosy neighbors as they hunted down Cookie. We could convince an entire school system that we had a mother in a house. 
the only two things that could prevent us from getting split up and placed in separate foster homes. And we knew how to run from our mother when she was drunk as a rabid raccoon and ready to focus her heft and her misery on any one of us who got in her way, especially G. G was the one who, whose father who had broken Cookie's heart. In this way, I might have been the luckiest. My father didn't break Cookie's heart. He just went to prison. And when he got out of there, he was murdered before he could break her heart. In all of that, through all of that, no, we rarely cried until the day when G just couldn't stop. Then I'm gonna jump ahead to where we're in the foster home. At the front door on the cement stoop was a thin woman with stringy brown and gray hair. She wore black leggings and an oversized Popeye sweatshirt. In the same hand in which Popeye held his pipe, she held her cigarette. She looked us up, up and down, and her nose and lips contracted as if we smelled. And then she dropped her cigarette on the stoop and stomped it with her white canvas sneaker. This was something I'd seen Cookie do many times, although Cookie was fond of high heel shoes that made a horse's clip-clop when she walked. Thought you got lost, she said. Her voice was like crushed ice. This one took a little longer than usual, Mrs. Brady said. So these are the two, huh? Her eyes were tiny blue pinpoints that she drilled into me for one second before drilling him into Norm. This is Norman and Roseanne, Mrs. Brady said. Kids, meet Mrs. Callahan, your new foster mother. I want G, I whispered. I got you. Norm whispered back. They look too skinny to me, Mrs. Callahan said. I don't want no finicky eaters, you hear? What I serve, they eat. This ain't no diner and I ain't, got no sh I ain't no short order cook. I'm sure they'll appreciate anything you put in front of them. They haven't had a real meal in weeks. Mrs. Brady gave a forced smile and I wondered if she didn't like Mrs. Callahan. And the stipend sure don't give me enough money to buy them separate meals. It barely covers the cost of keeping them here. I do this out of generosity, you hear? You gotta be giving a generous soul to spend your own money on people like this. Mrs. Callahan's nose lifted up again. I wondered if she was part dog and that's why she kept sniffing at us. I'm sure they'll appreciate all, the, all your goodwill and all your good meals, Mrs. Brady said. Won't you kids? Yes, ma'am, Norm said, and he put his hands on my ears to stop me sh from shaking my head no. Becky will show them around, Mrs. Callahan said, and then she shouted into the house, Becky, now! A second later, a freckled-faced, open-mouthed, breathing girl, a little taller than Norm, appeared. She wore small, wire-rimmed glasses and had brown hair cut in the shape of an upside-down salad bowl in her head. When she stood still, her body made the letter S. Shoulders slumped forward, back rounded at the top, stomach bulging, butt out. Below all her legs, splayed out wide, feet pointed into a V. Show them around the house, Mrs. Callahan said, and she walked to the social worker and she walked the social worker to the car, leaving Norm and me with splatter-footed Becky. Come on, Becky said, and waddled away from with Norm and me following. Mom said we weren't getting any more grimy rent-a-kids, but looky looky, Becky looked at us as if to make sure we knew that we were the rent-a-kids to which she was referring to. We entered the kitchen, Becky said, this is the kitchen, obviously. Norm and I looked at each other, trying not to smirk. You're not allowed to touch anything in here, ever, unless you get permission from, your, from my mom, but she'll never give you permission, so don't even ask. Becky picked up a wrapped Twinkie off the counter, opened it and ate it in three giant bites while Norm and I watched. Becky was still chewing the Twinkie when we followed her into the living room. Living room, she said, obviously. Norm squeezed my hand and I bit my lip so I wouldn't laugh. 
and you're not allowed to go in this room ever. Obviously, Norm whispered. Becky didn't seem to hear and galumphed away, then up the stairs, her feet slapping each step heavily. Norm and I followed quietly. We stopped outside a bathroom with brown and yellow tiles, a sliding shower door, and a toilet that was missing the lid. Norm and I looked at each other, holding back our smiles. We'd had far worse. In fact, as far as bathrooms went, this was one of the better ones. Bathroom, obviously. This time, Becky dragged out the word, as if the bathroom we were even more obvious than the other rooms. You and the other rented kids have to keep it clean. You're only allowed to use it during the day. And if we have to go at night, Norm asked. Hold it in, Becky said. Obviously, Norm said. Or use the bucket. A jagged little smile slipped across Becky's mouth. Bucket, Norman laughed, and I giggled. You're not going to laugh when you're when the door is locked and you have to smell that bucket, Becky said. We followed Becky down the hall to a wood-paneled room with four sets of bunk beds and a single bulb hanging from the ceiling. The switch for the light was in the hallway, outside the room. Becky turned it on. Bunk room, obviously. Becky pointed to the small stretch of wall where there was no bed. Sit in here and wait for my mom. Norm and I did as we were told. We both kept our eyes on Becky, all curved and splatty on the doorway. After the couple of seconds, she turned her head and shouted into the room, Ma, I'm done with the tour. Mrs. Callahan showed up and Becky stepped further into the room. I don't want no trouble out of you two, you hear? Mrs. Callahan said. Norm and I both nodded. You do everything we say and we'll get along fine. And don't you think you can be sneaking around my back because I got eyes and ears all over this house. I thought of flozening eyes and detached ears bobbing against the ceiling while forgotten party balloons. And Becky here, Mrs. Callahan pointed at Becky, who stared at her mother with open-mouthed wonder. Sees everything. She ain't, there ain't nothing that gets by her, you got it? Yes, Norm said, and he nudged me until I answered yes, too. You want to tell the rules or me? Ms. Callahan said to her daughter, who had yet to close her gaping mouth. You, Becky said. Fine. Roll one. All foster things in the bunk room at 8 p.m. with lights out. Becky smiled at the words, foster things. I wonder if I replaced, if she'd replaced Rent-A-Kid with that. Rule two, Ms. Callahan continued, the bunk room door stays locked between eight until six, next, until six the next morning. Rule three, if you have to go to the bathroom after 8 p.m., you use the bucket. Ms. Callahan nodded at Becky, who smiled and rushed to the closet. She slid the open door and pointed up and down in her thick arm at the blue plastic bucket. Can I tell them about bucket duty? Becky grinned. Yep, make it quick, Mrs. Callahan said. You got to carry the bucket downstairs. Becky's voice swung up as if it were a question. And you can't spill it or you'll get in trouble. And then you take it in the backyard and you dump it in the poop hole. Now she was really smiling, as if the word poop brought out a particular pleasure. Rule four, Mrs. Callahan continued. You can use the bathroom more than three times a day. This ain't no toilet paper factory. And when you use toilet paper, don't you use more than three squares for number one and six squares for number two. I was wondering how she would even know how many squares anyone used when Mrs. Callahan said, Becky will know if you use too much and she'll tell me. Obviously, Norm whispered so quietly that I felt the words more than I heard them. All right. That's... Okay, we can open up to questions and answers if you want. Well, um, my oldest sisters, um, Sherry lives in Nebraska. Camille actually still lives on Long Island. And Norm is in Pennsylvania. He's moving out to Nebraska uh, very soon. But he's, um, they're all really good. And 
you know, we broke the cycle. All of our kids are amazing. Are amazing humans, giving, kind, giving back to the community and church. And um, so there's uh, 14 nieces and nephews among us all, and it's it's pretty exciting. But the adults, the siblings, really good. You know, um, this whole process has been amazing. It really has. It was um, at the point. You know, I struggled with my own identity for years, trying to figure out how to make a life out of chaos and try to figure out how to function in a world without abuse. And so, um, like an anthropologist, I read everything I could, um, researched, read, um, studied families, watched couples, watched humans exist again, how to function, because already I was 17 years old and I and I'm just trying to start my life fresh. So um, so I was already negative 17 years from trying to undo everything I had. So it took me a long time to try to figure it out. Um, however, once um, Etched in Sand came out and I finally read it, I realized we were all abused and we all, our mother affected all of us in a different way. None of us came out of it unscathed. And so, it was it was difficult for me to read it because it was heartbreaking, but knowing how much they loved me, how much they'd done for me, and how much they protected, because what I had known up to that point from my childhood was very selective, and from the times that all the siblings were together and they were sheltering me, that's what I remember, most of the good times, because they had done so well at protecting me, except once Cookie had taken me, then I was, all the beatings that were dispersed amongst all the siblings were now isolated to just me. Um, and so it took many years to undo. However, um, Etch and Sand brought it to fruition to understand that we were all in it together. Um, and then as the process started, and when it was brought up about Girl and Broken to write this, um, having, having Regina and especially Jessica come through and work all the details to try to find who I was, I was already in a really good place in my life. And at the time, a few years ago, I was, I had already, um, my past didn't define me anymore. I had a great job. I have a great family. I've been married for 15 years, have three amazing kids and, um, and our challenges now are my son having Rice Krispies instead of Captain Crunch or my elder son missing a charger for a cell phone. And I mean, those are the challenges my kids face. So I realized, although Regina and I, sister, our, our stories are similar, they are very different. And I had seen the impact um, that she had had, and I knew that I had a different message to share. And um, so I, having them both help me, um, it brought me, uh, and Regina had to know everything, and Jessica, they both had to know everything about me that happened. And a lot of it is in there. And initially the book would have been 800 pages if we could have, but already it was, I think, 100 pages more than Etch and Sand. It's, it's, it's a lot. It was a lot, but I found a voice and Jessica made it just beautiful. Um, Regina just having her support and love and to help me write it was amazing. Um, but but I am such an, a more amazing because they helped me through it so much so. And I gained a friend for life with Jessica, so I just love her to death. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It says at the beginning, Girl and Broken Rose reads a poem that says, you have to walk that lonesome road. You have to walk it by yourself. And there's nobody who's going to walk it for you, our Calcaterra. So this little poem was written by me when I was nine years old. And um, in Etch and Sand, I, I um, talked about a um, fourth grade teacher who I had just for a little bit of time because we were transient kids again. We moved in and out of you know, places very quickly. 
And this fourth grade teacher had us write poems, and I wrote this one poem that I talked about in Itch and Sand, and I only remembered it because she had me recite it over and over and over and over and over again. Because how many things do you really remember from elementary age? And, um, but, I, but I talked about her and the impact that she had on me. So 40 years later, the age of 49, just last year, I was at, at doing an author talk on Long Island, and she showed up, my teacher, Ms. Muse, and she actually had two poems in her hand. She kept two poems of mine that I wrote 40 years ago. And one of them was this one. The poem, you have to walk that lonesome road, you have to walk it by yourself. And there's nobody who's going to walk it for you. And again, I wrote that at nine. And when she handed me this poem in the original piece of paper, in, in plastic, that was, it was, she protected it in plastic. And she said that she had saved this for me and wanted to give it back to me. And when I read it, it was the time that Rosie and I started writing her story together. And I couldn't imagine a better way to start her journey, sharing Rosie's story, because she, it was right before she was nine years old when she actually had to walk that lonesome road by herself. Because for me, I had my siblings around me, at least when I was still in New York and in a foster home there. I had my two older sisters nearby. But Rosie was taken away by my mother, and my mother kidnapped her, them and brought them to Idaho. So she did walk that lonesome road by herself. So we thought that was the best way to start a book about a nine-year-old actually reflecting on how challenging it was to go through their tough situation, but really when it was the younger sister who was the one who had to walk that lonesome road by themselves. So there's, it's, it's an amazing story. It's a story of perseverance and optimism and resilience and tenacity. So um, we hope you have an opportunity to read it. We hope that um, you enjoy it. And um, Rosie has a Facebook page that is um, Girl Unbroken and her name as well. She's got two different ones and she's got a website which is Girl Unbroken. So if you have any questions about Girl Unbroken, just go ahead to her page and you could ask her some questions. So thank you very much for coming tonight. We really appreciate it. And now we'll just move on to the book signing and thank Rosie so much. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.